and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we need to talk about saving the world. My guest, I'm humbled and delighted to say, is Jeff Vandermeer, literary polymath, environmental champion and all-round good guy. His new novel, Hummingbird Salamander, came out a few weeks ago to fairly rapturous applause, and he took some time from his farming schedule to talk to little old me. The farming schedule in question was actually mentioned by his publicist, and I, I got the wrong end of the stick, hence the slightly awkward beginning to this conversation. Anyway, Hummingbird Salamander is typically Vandermeerian, and I mean, is that a thing? If not, it, it should be. It's typical in how atypical it is. Jeff's an author who's proved almost impossible to pin down. His fiction ranges from the weird to the whimsical and back to the downright horrifying. As you'll hear me explain, I was actually slightly worried about how far Hummingbird Salamander is from horror at, at first glance. I mean, essentially, it's an eco-noir, which, again, isn't a term, but it should be. I was concerned that it, it would possibly try the patience of you bloodthirsty, well, bastards. But as Jeff explains, he considers himself to be a writer anchored by horror. And really, what could be more horrifying than a book about how slow and then rapid acceleration towards the end of the world. Between this and getting a dog, 2021 has revolutionised my thinking about animals, ecosystems, and the sheer madness of, of what we are doing to them. Yeah, I look at my dog every day, and, and I, I'm becoming increasingly vegetarian, because, well, I'm a hypocrite. It's not just us humans that are bloodthirsty, though. If you may have seen the title of the episode, it, it features our first on-air killing. Yeah, keep listening, nature really is red in tooth and claw. Before I whisk you away to the conversation, though, I have an undignified request. Give me your money. <laughs> right, this isn't robbery, it's the announcement that I've set up a Patreon account. Talking Scared has been a success beyond anything I could have imagined back in September when... Paul Tremblay and John Langan did me the favour of appending their huge names to my small project. But I'm 36 episodes deep now, and it's a lot of hard work to keep going at this pace. And a fair bit of cost as well. Going forward, the show is going to need some support, and I've set up a Patreon account, and you'll get a lot of perks. More details follow the interview, but I wanted to mention it here in case for some reason you don't listen all the way to my masterful afterword. There are details in the show notes also. All I can say is that if anyone is willing to become a member, if you want to help this thing become what it could be, then, well, my gratitude will know no bounds. I'm grateful for every listener, and I'm really grateful for anyone who wants to contribute and support and help take this to the next level. Thank you. Whew, that was awkward. I'm blushing and I feel cheeky, but seriously, thank you. And if this is your first taste of Talking Scared, then trust me, I'm not usually quite this long-winded. It's normally straight into the interview and I save my waffling for, for afterwards when you can gleefully ignore me. But I am done now, so here we go. Let's head off to a small, anonymous building in the Pacific Northwest. Inside is a small, anonymous security deposit box. And inside that is a hummingbird and a clue to the end of all things. Let's talk scared. Jeff, how are you doing today? Pretty good. It's a nice sunny day in Tallahassee, Florida. You may be our first Floridian guest, so 
Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm delighted you're here. You you are a big name for our fledgling podcast, so much appreciated. Let's get one thing straight. You're on a farming schedule, is that right? <laughs> well, we live in a in a house uh, and have for three years where there are these uh, unique kind of upper windows to let the the sun in. Uh, and there's no real blinds or anything on them. So we basically wake up at dawn and we begin to feel sleepy at dark. So I joke that we are on a farming schedule just because it has definitely changed our, our sleep patterns. It's a very unique kind of combination of a treehouse and kind of Escher-like creation. So you've got your um, your rhythms in order then? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's making it interesting, though, for the upcoming book tour for the, the West Coast events where I would normally be in bed by 9 p.m. <laughs> our time. Yeah, no, because I wondered about that because your, your, um, your publicist said farming schedule and I wondered if you were out in the, in the fields raising cattle. Well, I mean, oddly, too, we're, we're on the edge of this wooded ravine where they built houses along the top, but it's too steep to build down in it. So we have this amazing trough of woodland for about eighth of a mile, uh, even though we're 10 minutes from the, the capital. So that also kind of makes it feel like we're out in some rural area, even though we aren't. Well, I mean, this is all very pertinent to the book we're here to talk about. So yeah. you're here to discuss your new novel, Hummingbird Salamander, which comes out on April 15th. So by the time this episode goes live, it will have been out for a week or so. People may have read it by then, you know, who are listening. I've read a fair bit of your work, not all of it, but a fair bit. This one easily for me ranks amongst the most challenging, both in terms of style and language, but also in its implications for reality, I suppose. What can you tell us about it? Um, well, I think it's um, more or less uh, in the kind of eco-thriller genre, and it's about this woman who's a security uh, consultant uh, with a kind of unresolved past, let's put it that way, who is given a key to a storage unit one day by a dead woman who she's never met before, who turns out in some quarters to be thought of as an eco-terrorist. And when she goes to the storage unit, she finds a taxidermied hummingbird that turns out to be an extinct species. And in fact, even having the the taxidermy is kind of like contraband. Um, and so she goes down this kind of uh, rabbit hole of unearthing forces that are well beyond her ability to control. And by the time she realizes that she's stuck in, there's no way to kind of get out of, out of this and just kind of put it behind her. She has to kind of see it through. And so that's kind of the setup for it. Uh, and it does involve wildlife trafficking and, and discussions of what eco-terrorism is and strange books like this book I found from the 1930s called Fur Town. It's a real book, uh, which is like propaganda for the fur industry and kind of ties into some of the th other themes about wildlife trafficking. But then also there's a lot of things in there that I think are about the beauty of the world that we might be losing uh, right now and uh, all the very complicated issues we, we face with regard to climate crisis. Yeah, and I think you've partially answered what is going to be my opening question there, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, when I received this book from, from Ford Estate, and I, I read the synopsis, and I had the, the opportunity to get you on the show, I'm not going to lie, part of me thought, you know, this is a bit of a stretch to to crowbar this novel into a a show that is nominally about horror. And then I thought, well, you know, it, it's Jeff Vandermeer, he's written a lot of stuff that is really disturbing over the years 
Um, so I was kind of making allowances for this book not being horror. And then when me and you were kind of chatting by email to arrange this, I said that, you know, it isn't a horror novel. And you, you politely disagreed. So tell me, where does the horror lie in this novel? Well, I think that um, ever since I started out writing, um, you know, I actually started out in the small press horror scene, more or less. And a lot of what I wrote early on was just straight up horror. And then I began to write longer pieces and and to write in different genres. Uh, but there was always still an element of what I would call horror or unease or paranoia. Um, and I think that's in part because I think a lot of the, the things that I explore do have to do with disturbing subjects. And, you know, in the environmental stuff, there's also a lot of uh, danger and there's a lot of anxiety about where we are now. And and exploring all of that and exploring ideas that people may find uncomfortable, I think there's an element of horror. But I also think that there's a kind of a balance and an anchor in it, which is to say that, you know, I write very surreal stuff. I write stuff about the beauty of the world. But I think that without the the balance of, of the hard reality of, of some of the horrors of the world as well, you know, a, a narrative can kind of become unmoored. And so in Hummingbird Salamander, I think, you know, there are there are scenes like one without giving uh, too much away in a warehouse uh, that I, I think are definitely uh, horrific, <laughs> to say the least. And the situations that Jane finds herself in the main character, I think, are are fairly horrific. And in part, that's because of the psyche of the people that she becomes enmeshed with, uh, who some of them, I would say, uh, have lost all perspective on 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 anything um so there is that and you know even the warehouse scene i see that as almost kind of like an homage to a similar scene in, in a straight out science fiction horror uh, novel of mine venice underground from back in the day yeah that that scene is sensory shall we say in every way um as someone who's an animal lover and i get very upset i've read quite a few books recently spoken to quite a lot of authors who have have featured animal cruelty to some some degree in their work. Yeah, it, it leaves me in a state of, of sort of quite a lot of distress. And we'll, we'll get into this. I mean, you've made me think things about hummingbirds that I didn't think before. So we'll get to that. But you say that horror is an anchor. What do you mean by that? I just mean that sometimes the horror too is in someone's perception of the body almost. Um, so sometimes... You know, I'll just be writing stuff that's about the real way in which there's contamination in the world um, and that this is actually the way things are and that there's less separation between the outside and the inside uh, than we might expect and that our own bodies are contaminated all the time by and having a dialogue with bacteria and parasites and all kinds of things we can't see. Uh, and I find this fascinating, uh, but uh, many people don't don't find it fascinating. Uh, and so even with something like Annihilation, uh, which has definite creepy, uncanny moments, for some readers who aren't as familiar with North Florida and, and or wildlife, uh, some of the animal encounters that I find somewhat transcendent or interesting, but not horrific, can be horrific too. So there is kind of a sliding scale to it. But I guess what I mean is that um, it's it's fine to explore what a utopian vision might be, which I think Hummingbird Salamander does in part, although it's contaminated by a lot of things. And it's fine to, I think, engage in 
wondrous visions. But for me, the anchor is that, again, especially with what we're doing to the world right now, it seems untruthful to not, you know, to, 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 to kind of not show the rest of it. And so while I would never show like um, injured animals or anything on my Twitter, you know, I keep a, a different kind of messaging there. I think in a novel, which is a laboratory of ideas in some ways that you, you have to show the, the full reality and you have to kind of show what we're doing to the world. I mean, you mentioned your your Twitter. Your social media presence makes me laugh because it's such a wholesome place <laughs> compared to these nightmares that you write about. It's, it's like it's... Your, your love your love of birding makes me smile every day. You know what I mean? And then then I read your stuff, and it's like Jesus, this is from the same brain. It, well, it is kind of hilarious to me because I I generally have kind of a humorous, uh, absurdist view of the world. I think that comes out in the fiction, but but often you know just the subject matter of the fiction, I don't get the opportunity to express the humor necessarily. Although I think there are some darkly humorous moments in Hummingbird Salamander and then in Born, one of my prior novels, because of the weird parenting relationship at the middle of it, in the in the center of it, I think there was an opportunity for humor that you don't see in my fiction. But but yeah, I definitely think there are people who come to my Twitter accepting, expecting some kind of uh, brooding goth <laughs> presence and, uh, and instead find this kind of uh, cheery... <laughs> curmudgeon a dorbler <laughs> and then don't quite know what to do with that uh, but you know of course we know that the work is separate from the artist to some degree so i wonder you, you mentioned the like humor and stuff and you're quite a difficult author to pin down in terms of genre and I, I'm, I'm not really interested in that because you, your work speaks for itself but the new york times famously anointed you the, the king of weird fiction i think weird fiction is is such a strange designation because like horror or suspense or thriller they're all words that are kind of named after the intended response that they want to evoke whereas weird is a strangely flexible judgment call yeah what do you think about being you know the, the king of the weird i mean i know i know you wrote <laughs> the book the, the the big compendium of weird fiction as right. well so you must have a an affection for it but is it not a weirdly amorphous um, thing to be categorized well, as? My goal through my whole career is to basically just be called a novelist and, <laughs> or writer. And the reason being is that I do, as you say, uh, write in a lot of different genres. And so it's not very useful for me to be get tagged as one thing because the next book I might write might be fairly different. And, and then people get confused as to why this guy who seemed like he was a sci-fi writer or whatever writer is writing something else. And so I've been fairly successful with that. But I don't mind the weird label just because it's not really a marketing term. So the conversations are more interesting around it. I think marketing terms are great for, you know, readers finding what they want. But at the same time, the conversations that I want to have are a little more amorphous than that. And also the weird does have this kind of time-honored kind of vague definition of an encounter with an unknown that is not, truly isn't known. So, you know, for example, vampires or werewolves don't count in a way because unless they can be recontextualized completely, the reader already brings all these archetypal things with them when they think of those, those creations. Uh, and then also that the weird is not necessarily about, uh, you know, 
interpreting a horrific moment as horrific, that the unknown may be incredibly beautiful and alien and beyond understanding in a way that does provoke a sense of wonder as much as a sense of fear or both things intertwined. And so I find that really quite quite interesting. And so I don't, I don't mind it so much. Now, the New Yorker called me the weird Thoreau, which cracked me up because I'm, I'm not really a big <laughs> Thoreau fan. And, and also, I feel like Thoreau was kind of the, the weird Thoreau. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's just like, okay, who wrote about the environment? Thoreau, first name on the list, you know. <laughs> it's funny, though, because you mentioned that thing about, you know, it can be beautiful and awesome. I mean, it, that goes back to the sublime, you know, the very, the very yeah. origins of horror or supernatural fiction, that the sublime, the confrontation with something that is beyond us that then Lovecraft took to extremes. And and, and your work, to me, always deals with the sublime. Mm-hmm. Hummingbird Salamander is, is full of sublime moments. But mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of think of your work, what, what I've read of it, as, as having been a bit of a spectrum. And, and most people, I assume, uh, who are not devoted fans of yours, will know you because of Annihilation. Because the Southern Reach was such a big hit. And then obviously there was the massive success of the film adaptation on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And to me, yeah. Annihilation or, or that trilogy sits in the exact middle point for me of your writing. Because you've got mm-hmm. stuff like Hummingbird Salamander, which is heightened realism, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you've got stuff like Born, mm-hmm. in which you have this apocalyptic landscape and in the middle of it you've got this gigantic flying <laughs> grizzly bear now i i think i have as much as i i read and i write i think i must have quite a pedestrian imagination because i was sitting thinking where on earth when you're writing a story where does the image or a device or a character like a gigantic flying bear how does that make an appearance in your brain and then in the story <laughs> First of all, I think I, I have from an early age wanted to read and explore and be curious about the world in as, as many different ways as possible. So while I am known for being kind of compulsive and obsessive in mining out a subject, I, I tend to, to, to do that across a wide variety of things. And I like a wide variety of media, too. And so something like Born, you know, is obviously more influenced by anime and manga and Miyazaki, uh, in addition to other stuff, it's kind of a mashup of different influences I hadn't seen put together before, in addition to what I was bringing to it. But, you know, what happens is you have a, uh, you know, you wake up, the way it works for me is you wake up and you have a an image in your head. You have a an image that came from nowhere, you know, because you fed your subconscious for so long that it's rewarding you. And and then you make sense of it. In this case, the flying bear appeared and uh, I had to decide whether there was actually going to be a flying bear in the novel. And once I did, then I determined that, of course, this was going to be a different kind of novel than Annihilation, which, quite frankly, you know, you're absolutely right. It sits in the middle in terms of the approaches to fiction, which is a nice pivot point for me then, you know, even though I'm going off in these different directions, it's still with kind of within that, the glow of, of annihilation. Um, but, it, but it, but it's not realism, you know, it's not realism in Born. I, I, I knew it was kind of a science fantasy novel. And, and I've always loved things like an anime where they just have something inexplicable that they don't even explain. And so even though I do kind of explain the flying bear, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to any more than Angela Carter has to explain the flying woman in Nights at the Circus. Um, so, so it's it's really that you you decide is this image something powerful that has a novel behind it, 
uh, is there a character that's compelling and interesting? And if so, then then you hopefully have through your career uh, built the writing chops through practice that allow you to pivot that way, to allow you to write in different styles and different modes. Yeah. Was it difficult or what might be the wrong word? Was it challenging in a different way to write a novel like Hummingbird Salamander, which you described as being set 10 seconds in the future? But it, it is ostensibly... A, a realist novel or much more realist than anything else I've, re- I've read by you was that did it pose a different challenge well you mentioned the um the southern reach trilogy and quite frankly if you look at those books they're about 80 percent realistic scenes with nothing weird happening in them <laughs> and then there's 20 percent that spikes off the charts and so you know the building blocks of any book are the scenes and so i'm very used to writing realist scenes that are not surreal or have any kind of speculative content. Um, it was more a challenge of figuring out when the novel was set. And so I say 10 seconds into the future, the, the more honest answer or more complex answer is that it's a novel that starts in our past, goes to our present and goes 10 seconds into our future by the end of the novel. And so that me- meant basically that I just had to figure out what kind of distance in terms of the details of like politics and whatnot I was going to have. And of course it helped that Jane is somewhat isolated at times. So she's kind of removed and in kind of rural locations where the news isn't going to quite impact her the same way. And so that, that helped a little bit. Um, the other thing is that I'm very familiar with the noir thriller genres. You know, I, I had a job with Publishers Weekly just reviewing uh, those genres for about four years before I wrote a book called Finch, which is a noir fantasy. And so the beats and progressions are very familiar to me. So, you know, it, 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 it helps too, you know, that I started out writing short stories and a lot of those short stories were all over the place. I don't think people know my full bibliography, but there was everything from realism with, with no speculative element all the way into complete surreal, you know, absurdity and, and whimsy. So that's kind of like, you know, those stories, I hope, stay on their own, but they're also great practice for the kinds of approaches you need to make certain things believable uh, and kind of, you know, uh, be comfortable uh, with doing a lot of different things. And it is very different. And I've got to say, it is a very dense, challenging read. And I, I'm still not fully sure that I've, I've grasped every avenue of it. And I had to go back and really think about the relationships between some of the central players because it's it's very complicated. Do you intentionally set out to challenge? Have you ever thought about giving us an easier time? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the reaction so far is that it's a pretty fast, um, straightforward read for me. Um, I know that there's an element of, of paranoid thriller in it that 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 complicates things, and there are a lot of complications along the way, but um, I've, I've had really nothing but people saying it's a fast uh, read. In fact, if anything, I've gotten the, the, the comment that uh, it's, it's more commercial than they expect from me, which I find quite funny coming after Dead Astronauts, which was basically an experimental prose poem. <laughs> yeah, no, commercial is a weird word to use. I, I think if you say something isn't commercial, that sounds like criticism or sounds like it won't be popular. Whereas, if I would say it wasn't commercial, what I would mean by that is that it isn't, it doesn't lend itself to easy consumption, you know? Right. I mean, it depends on who's using the words. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think any of your work is commercial in, in the way that I would use that word, meaning easy. Mm-hmm. 
it demanded a lot of me when I was reading it. I had to really read it with a um, a really conscious mind and like put it together. And, it, and it's nice to do that sometimes. It's nice to I, I read a lot, a lot of genre stuff and and it, it runs a gamut of complexity. But no, I, I did I did find it dense and challenging. But as I say, not just in in the way it's written, but the actual implications and the content as well, which does bring us, I suppose, to the the elephant in the room, which is the eco-crisis so mm-hmm. when i do these interviews often they set on a central theme in a book or a career and I, I could pick a dozen things to talk about from your work but the one that mm-hmm. seems most ubiquitous and the most pertinent is ecology more than just crisis e- ecology as a whole um so where to start with that to ask a, a kind of broad question was there a light bulb moment that awakened you to ecology as a, a focus for your career I think I've been honing in and the granularity of it has been getting greater and greater in the sense that I've been reading more and more, experiencing more and more over my lifetime. And so, you know, I do think Annihilation was a flashpoint uh, because, you know, I was suddenly talking about the environment to science departments and, and getting all kinds of invites that were not literary invites, but were more about the science and and in an environmental context. And so um, that, you know, made me want to inhabit that space even more since I had the opportunity and and to try to be of even more use given that it looked like I actually had the opportunity to have a platform. And so, you know, part part of it is I think the initial thing when we had the Gulf oil spill here and you know about 10 years ago where it was just horrifying and it felt like it was never going to be capped and the entire Gulf of Mexico was going to be destroyed. Uh, and that was that definitely one waking up moment um, where it's like, if we don't get involved in local politics, if we don't get more involved in general, this kind of stuff's going to keep happening in our backyard and in an area that's one of the most biodiverse in the world. And then when we bought the new house and moved here and I realized how many invasive, uh, non-useful to wildlife plants were in the in the yard, it was another uh, kind of awakening uh, where I spent a lot of time learning about what would be useful for wildlife would be useful for the birds. And once you do that, you know, whole landscapes come alive. I used to hike to see birds and mammals. And now I I see all the plants and know all the plants as well. So um, it's been this kind of awakening in that sense. And then I've become more and more involved uh, to some degree in local politics, which is very important because of the the fact this area is biodiverse and and development is kind of ramping up and and, and it's doing bad things. But um, yeah, I mean, the ecology is not really separate from the climate crisis, because if we destroy too much habitat, if we cut down too many trees and destroy too many ecosystems, we're just as dead, uh, regardless of whether we have green technology or not. So I, I, I try to make those connections because they're so important. I don't know that everybody thinks that way. I, I see a lot of green tech people who do a lot of damaging things to the environment as if it doesn't matter, but the green tech does, and it, it drives me nuts. There's a recurrent thing in in the book about on more than one, more than one occasion you describe something quite disparagingly as looking like a tech bro campus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big Elon Musk fan. Let's put it that way. Yeah, um, is, I was going to say, is that a subset of society that you have a particular issue with? Well, I mean, you know, I have an issue with again a narrow focus uh, amongst folks who think a technological solution is what's going to get us there. And then some of them are just outright hucksters who are just using that that area to make money. 
And Musk falls somewhere in between where he's built this amazing battery, but then, you know, <laughs> it's powered by mining lithium. Uh, he has this bizarre idea of colonizing Mars, which is just a complete shit show as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and he's, you know, he's promoting Bitcoin, which is one of the biggest environmental yeah. dangers we face right now in terms of a currency that <laughs> now has the carbon imprint of uh, larger than some countries. So, you know, I see all these contradictions and, you know, obviously the focus is on the fossil fossil fuel industry and, and people who are have, have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. But it's it's disconcerting when it's an own goal, so to speak, you know what I mean? When the people that you expect to get the full picture don't, um, and then you have to push back on that front as well, it becomes exhausting. I'm quite ignorant about technology and about the climate crisis beyond what I have been told, you know? So that's why reading this book was quite an eye opener for me, which I'll get to. But yeah, the Bitcoin thing, it sounds so counterintuitive that something which is essentially a virtual construct could actually have such a detrimental impact. I had no idea, but it's terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's so weird, too, because I and not to get into it too much, but I but then people say, oh, but, you know, a lot of it's powered by renewable energy. And I'm like, well, we still don't have 100 percent renewable energy for our basic needs. So what does that mean? Yeah. You know, we have so little room to maneuver as it is that when these new things spike, it, it, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, but yeah, I would I would just say that there's a insular nature, whether it's uh, TechPro or even you know in in native plant groups that I'm part of. There's an insular nature, and so I'm also aware that I probably have things that I don't think about, you know. And so I'm constantly fine tuning and trying to learn more and trying not to be territorial about what I think I know uh, because this con this whole issue is so complicated and and needs a complex solution, which is something that we're not very good at doing. You see, you've mentioned quite a few groups there in politics and communities and lecturing and, and you've become someone who's involved on a broader sense in these in these issues. But do you do you ever feel kind of like you're being forced to campaign through your fiction? Or is that just where your creative mind goes anyway? No, it's just, um, you know, first of all, I usually have like seven or eight novel ideas at the same time that I'm equally passionate about. And, and lately especially post-annihilation, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in having things be mechanical that should be mechanical, but also things be organic that should be organic. And one thing I believe in is telling my subconscious, this is the kind of stuff I want to write about. And then it automatically generates that and focuses on that. Um, most of the ideas I get are environmental in some way, but also because the world around us is, is gripped in this crisis. So it, it's all around you. Uh, so it, it's not so much that I, I don't ever force myself to write something. I mean, I have plenty of opportunities to write essays and, and nonfiction, uh, which is its own art form to express some of these ideas. Uh, but what excited me about a thriller like Hummingbird Salamander is it kind of weaponizes or supercharges information. You know, information in the book is clues, is, is misdirection, is uh, about the personalities involved. So, you know, the, the, the very structure of the book uh, renders stuff that would be exposition in a different kind of novel into part of Jane's quest. And, and so that that makes the book a little more direct than some of my others in terms of the environmental stuff, because I felt like it wouldn't be didactic. It's actually part of the plot. Yeah, that, that actually does make sense, because it's all the stuff that's happening in the background as well. It's the well, I'll get into that. But let's get into the novel finally. We, we've prevaricated enough like Hummingbird Salamander. 
it, it shows the world on the very kind of precipice of collapse, both environmental and then consequently societal. And it actually makes for quite a difficult read in places because it, it really brings home how quickly that stuff that we've, we've traditionally treated as post-apocalyptic fiction, that stuff is now threatening to become kind of pre-apocalyptic fact. Mm-hmm. It's like you said about the, the Gulf oil spill. All of a sudden, we're seeing things in the news that are like, oh, God, this is this is happening now, you know, but it, it's no longer a thing that it's no longer a Jeremiah. It's no longer a thing that we're thinking, oh, if we don't change our ways, it'll happen. It's it's happening now. Um, and as, as the novel goes on, the, the background kind of accrues this this weight where there's references to pandemics and, you know, more than one pandemic. And we've got mm-hmm. this increasingly green tinged sky and dead, dead animals and the best way I can describe it is it's a sci-fi thriller in plot, but a horror story in setting. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, to some degree, it's fair. I can see it uh, being read that way. Um, the uh, That was, again, the kind of challenge. You know, it's like I'm, I'm finishing it up at the beginning of the pandemic, basically. You know, I mean, uh, and doing like what's the overlay if i'm if i have to change anything you know i mean one big thing was i was knew i wasn't going to mention trump which you know if you mention specific words like that it's like conjuring up all kinds of associations that that then alter or you know uh throw off the novel and so finding the right distance you know so instead i talk about her going to a conference where they're all talking about new mask technology and stuff like that so so I found ways to, as you say, it's it make it science fictional, but then in the the broader details, you know, at the same time that that I was finishing up this novel, we had in Oregon, we had militias actually stopping people on the road during wildfires because they thought that leftists were setting the wildfires. <laughs> you know, so so in a way, although there's stuff in there that to some parts of the world uh, will feel better than things are now. Uh, it'll also feel like it's worse than things are now, even though in some parts of the world, everything that I described just about is something that has happened. And that's part of the horror of it. Yeah, that's it actually frightened me. I, I was sitting reading it this week and th- there are these great little paragraphs where you you basically list things that are happening, you know, in, in this world. Things like that, you know, militias and, and riots and plagues and droughts and things. And it frightened me because it, yeah, it just really brings home to this. I'm repeating myself, but how this stuff is no longer the the province of of fiction, and I, I can't really say why it hit me reading this, but something about this book gave it a critical mass for me, um, which was yeah, it was, it was disconcerting. <laughs> but as it as in most of your books, you go into a lot of detail about the cultures and biologies of animals. And I think that's where it has this great resonance because you have this hummingbird, this extinct species of hummingbird, and you write about this creature that flies across the landmass of the Americas and 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 you make us feel how brave it is, how how hardy it is and ingenious it is. And then you tell us that we've made its life impossible because of damage to its ecosystem. And I think weirdly, by giving us that token, that symbol to look at, that's the thing that brought home to me the reality of the ongoing disaster more than quite literally anything has before. And I had this real moment of existential, ethical sadness when I was reading about it. 
do you write about animals for that reason? Do you think it's a vehicle to make the biggest emotional impact? Um, it just really depends. Sometimes I'm writing about animals so that people will understand them more for themselves than how they serve us or how we're supposed to be interacting with them, but just purely for the fact that they have their own integrity and their own view of the world. But I think here, I really wanted to tell the story of the hummingbird and upfront because I think it's one of those things that enmeshes Jane in the mystery. It's very, it's not familiar to her. You know, she's, she hasn't thought about the world this way. So when she has to research that as part of trying to figure out why she's been given this taxidermy, I think that really changes her. And I really wanted, uh, oh gosh, okay. Uh, sorry, a sharp-shinned hawk just got a pigeon, I mean, a dove right outside the window. Sorry, a little distracting. Um, wow. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, so I wanted to show that full journey and I wanted to definitely put it in kind of mythical or human terms in the sense of what that endurance is, what what it means for an animal to travel thousands of miles and what it means for that journey to become more and more uh, uncertain because of habitat loss and everything else. Uh, and 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 make it feel like it would if you were having to take that that journey. And and so I thought that was very important. At the same time, uh, you may have noticed that I withheld the salamander story until later because I felt there was a different emotional resonance to be had by giving that information later. So a lot of times, too, when I'm talking about animals and it's coming through a human context, I'm looking for the the moment that makes sense for the character to think about it or tell about it or to have it in there. Uh, and so it's not just meant to be the journey itself. It's also what it means to Jane in those those two moments when those things happen. Yeah, because like you said, the salamanders, there, there are certain aspects of the salamander's biology which actually kind of work as a metaphor for the problem, aren't they? You know, the, the like perspective and feedback loops and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you have a, a creature that breathes through its skin, which means it gets all of these pollutants. I mean, if we breathe through our skin, if we were that porous, um, we would have much, <laughs> much better laws against herbicides and pesticides and poisons in the atmosphere, uh, because so many of us would be dying, it would be ridiculous. Um, another thing about hummingbirds and salamanders is hummingbirds go back as far as having kind of a hallucinatory experience when I had asthma, and I was in Cusco, and I looked out a, a hotel window, and I saw a hummingbird or thought I saw one, I still don't know. Uh, at the age of eight. And ever since then, I've been putting hummingbirds into my fiction, although this is the, the most I've ever done. And then salamanders, once I learned about that porousness, you know, and once I learned about our local flat, uh, frosted flatwood salamander that's endangered, um, you know, I've started using them. So Dead Astronauts also has hummingbirds. And it's not like I test it out and then, and then find a final place for it. It's just that I become really fascinated by a particular creature. And so it winds up being in more than one piece of fiction. As I say, I, th I think your hummingbird woke me up to the the real nature of the problem I, in an existential moment. Thank you. But you said an interesting thing there that gets right to the heart of the madness of all that, of all this. You said that, you know, if we had porous skin, there'd be a damn sight more laws against pollutants. There's a part in the novel where one of the characters is musing. She says, you couldn't figure out if collapse was a cliff edge or a gentle slope because all of the mental constructs obscured it so sorry to give you a really specific question there but what do you mean by mental constructs what what stops us in your opinion recognizing just 
how fucked up this is getting. I think because, first of all, it's unevenly distributed, and then you have situations where certain areas are getting colder rather than hotter, and that confuses people even though it shouldn't. But then also our systems are are mostly set up for short-term solutions. Um, and I think capitalism has a, a huge role in all of that, in these short-term bursts of what we're supposed to do and buy and everything else. Uh, and then our politics, unfortunately, have become more and more corroded uh, over time. And, and I'm thankful to see a lot of activists in the social justice sphere and in the environmental sphere uh, in the next generations kind of coming up as politicians to try and put that right. But uh, we've been complacent for too long. Uh, the human mind is not set up to grasp this problem in its entirety. So even just dealing with, you know, rendering it down to policy decisions can be very difficult. Uh, Miami is doing this ludicrous thing right now while where they are building pumps that will pump out the water that's beginning to flood Miami Beach. But by the time the pumps are finished, the flooding will probably be at the capacity of those pumps. And a couple of years later, they will no longer be effective. <laughs> so that just gives you an example of like, we, we just can't seem to keep up with it. Um, and so, you know, these, this is also just about the absurdity of the human experience to some degree. And, and the fact that we often think of ourselves as more rational than we actually are. I mean, there's a lot of decision-making we make that is totally irrational, has nothing to do with logic. And, and so I like to pinpoint those moments because we have to be more self-aware of, of what we're doing and making sure that our solutions actually also make sense, which kind of goes back to the tech bro thing I was talking about. The other thing I would say is I, I meant to add that our skin is actually very porous. <laughs> a lot of us are slowly dying <laughs> from all of this stuff. It's just that it's not quite as immediate as a salamander. It's not quite as, <laughs> as open as a salamander. And so that's also a social justice issue because disproportionately people who are disadvantaged or, or historically have been are the ones who are bearing the brunt of this right now uh, from various contaminants. That's horrible. Yeah, sorry. I mean, some of this is horrible. <laughs> it's a horror podcast, Jeff. You're, you're allowed to depress people. It's fine. Um, I mean, Sylvina, the, the, the character who is the ostensible terrorist in, in all this, mm-hmm. um, she refers to the fatal adaptation, which, as, to understand, understand it, is the fact that we have psychologically adapted to to not recognize the full extent of the horror that we're perpetrating on our own ecosystem. And, you know, she says that to care more would mean putting a bullet in your own brain. And and I think of it almost like akin to the whole paradox about the fact of our own mortality. Like all human beings are aware they're going to die. That should drive you crazy. Just the knowledge that one day that will happen. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be able to, to live under the weight of that. Yet we can. And it feels the same with the environment that if you had a rational conversation with anyone alive on Spaceship Earth, they should be like, of course, we need to sort this. Yet they're able to adapt to ignore that fact. And there's something just really frightening about that. Right. Well, I mean, part of it is that um, each new generation thinks the nature they see around them is how it's always been. You know, and one thing I say a lot is that most movies that are set in the past including there's a Terrence Malick movie uh, called The New World, I think, uh, mm-hmm. show levels of animal life and bird life that are current to our time, not their time. So, you know, that's set back uh, right before Columbus conquered the New World, uh, sadly. <laughs> and in theory, if you read accounts from back then, every scene in that 
movie should just be crammed full of birds and animals. Uh, and, and that's what we don't seem to realize. I mean, people come to our ravine here and we have a high density of bird life and they hear the bird song and they hear, they see animals roaming around and they're like, this is crazy. It's like a zoo, but in actual fact, that's, that's the way the world is supposed to be. And, and even in urban and suburban areas for a long time, it was, you know, we've lost a lot of wildlife and animal life since the 1970s. You know, so when I was growing up in Fiji, the density of, of animal life compared to now is so different. Well, you, you think about like the passenger pigeon and, and the buffalo, mm. you know, the, the, the famous examples. Like when I first read about the passenger pigeon, th these flocks would fly overhead for three hours and they wouldn't end. I mean, it just sounds unfathomable. And, and the, fact that it's the, the fact that it sounds unfathomable shows how far we've fallen. Well, I mean, the good news is that, that I think people think of nature as fragile, but uh, considering the all-out war on nature that occurs in most of the world, it's not that it's fragile. This is not being given a chance. And so given half a chance, things will rebound, ecosystems will rebound. Um, we just have to make the mental decision and the policy decision at the governmental and corporate level that we're going to pursue policies that make sense because these same policies are the ones that are going to ensure our own survival. You talked about how some of this sounds horrific. What's horrific to me is the false hope of like glossing this over. I think the more facts you have, the more you know, you know what the situation is, the more you can actually propose solutions. So, so for me, the, the horror isn't in the facts. The horror is, is, is in not engaging with the facts, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah. And as a man who has all the, well, not all the facts, but far more facts than me, as this conversation has demonstrated. Tell me, Jeff, do you have hope or just despair? <laughs> I get asked this question a lot. <laughs> and uh, it's not that it makes me laugh. It's just that um, I feel, I do feel like the question is, with all due respect, irrelevant. Um, because this is a sliding scale of damage. Um, so anything we can do to to stop it, to turn things around, will prevent some damage. Are we at the point where we might see widespread uh, collapse of civilization? The worst case scenarios say yes. Uh, some of the more moderate ones say we can still pull this out. The person with more information than me, uh, and actually an influence on the novel as well, is, is my daughter, Erin uh, Kennedy, who works for um, a sustainability company in Amsterdam that's one of the best in the world. And, and she says that we still have a window of 20 years if we do these specific bullet point policy things to turn this around, that we can still turn it around. It's just we have to accept that there are complex solutions that require us to actually roll up our sleeves and do certain things we may not want to do in the short term. So, so I respect that a lot. And that gives me a lot of hope. And it gives me a lot of hope that she's out there actually helping whole cities become carbon neutral, you know? Um, so yeah. that, that, that helps a lot. Yeah, no, I, I asked that because, well, for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm a man sitting in a room in England having an existential crisis because of your book. Um, and I just want any kind, <laughs> any kind of hope. Um, and, and two, I think there's but, hope in the book. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to say. The book itself, and this isn't to give it anything away, but the book itself surprised me with a kind of kernel of hope that I didn't expect towards the end. And I'm I'm very grateful for that because I think <laughs> if this had just dwindled to a a, catacly a, a truly cataclysmic ending without any chance of hope, I, I don't know what I would have done. But was it important to you to kind of leave that that thread of hope in this kind of story? 
Well, sure. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, I, you know, Jane goes through a lot. <laughs> and I don't think it's, you know, I think it's just a nihilistic exercise uh, when a character goes through a lot and then <laughs> it just ends, so to speak, uh, without, again, talking about the actual spoilers, because there's a ton of spoilers yeah. um, in the last third of the novel. But, you know, so so I there's that. Um, there's then the complication. And this is really, I hope, for people who reread it, if they want to reread it. There's Jane, who's the environmental novice. There's Sylvina, who may be so obsessed that that her methodology may may be flawed too, you know, in, in part of, uh, you know, she, she can't escape her background as coming from this rich family, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think it's meant to be a complex situation. The The darkness too is, I'm such a fan in, in Thrillers and Noir of those kind of uh, beautifully bleak moments, the street lights at night with the, the rain covered streets, you know, that kind of uh, almost a false romanticism. So I don't want to buy into it too much, but thriller readers, you know, that's something that that darkness is not quite as, as dark as it is for, 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 for people who don't read in that, that genre. Um, but I think it, it's always important to me that the character arcs are, are true to somebody who's interesting, maybe flawed, but also has these things going for them that, that make you root for them on some level. One of the reasons you you do root for Jane is this horrendous background that she's had in her kind of formative years. And I was really quite surprised and, and quite happy about the fact that in this hyper-modern, paranoid, neo-noir thriller, you include what is essentially a kind of American gothic secondary narrative about her youth mm-hmm. it reads like something that like edith wharton would have written mm-hmm. or something you know it, it's this really cool really prototypical american gothic story mm-hmm. what where did that come from because it's such a genre smash her background compared to her present you know i don't i don't really know i mean i i do know that <laughs> although not to those extremes that there are certain relatives in our family that probably inspired you know, distant relatives in the past that inspired some of those characters. Um, I think also, also knowing a little bit about certain kinds of rural life, you know, I was very careful to indicate that like the farm background she has is actually kind of eccentric and not typical of farm life because it's not meant to be like a expose of rural life. It's this one messed up situation that she happened to be in as a child, but I don't know, you know, it just, it just, it was there. And I think the other thing we were talking about, like information and how it works in novels, uh, I found it really quite fascinating to put in this backstory that if it was just to bolster character, I think it would be of value to be in there. But it's it's so much more than that. Uh, and so in a way, it's a little sneaky because um, it's also a bit of misdirection. It's just a cool ingredient to add into the mix because it, it's a totally different flavor of story to what you're reading about in in the bulk of the novel. I uh, I really enjoyed it, and and I think also that it's true to the way people are. People can be very different. They can pivot a lot to try to escape their past and become a different person. Uh, and I think what what is true, even though it's a cliche, is that if you don't actually deal with it, <laughs> it'll still come back at some point on you. God, it does <laughs> in in numerous ways. Um, am I correct that Netflix have bought the the rights to this and they're adapting it? They have actually. Um, they they bought it uh, back in two thousand seventeen when I first thought of the novel. Um, 
Oh, wow. Was that kind of driven by the success of Annihilation? Do you think? Um, Probably. I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I can't talk about it, but almost all the novels are under some kind of option right now, although a lot of them are not, not, not public knowledge. And I think that, yeah, definitely came out of Annihilation. But, you know, I think also there was a period and there still is when people are looking for something a little different. And uh, those books definitely, <laughs> some of those books definitely are. Um, but yeah, they're working on it right now. And I, I really don't, I can't really talk about updates. I just know that, you know, they're having conversations with people and, and the pandemic has slowed things down, but things are ramping up again. So, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, there'll be some information. I'm just trying to imagine how it will work as a TV series or, or movie because uh, so much of it is so very subtle and, and kind of to do with in, interiority as well. You know, it, it would be strange to kind of turn this into an action-packed um, linear thriller because it, well, it, I mean, it's not all that. I think there's the interiority of Jane's character that gives you that closeness and that sense of anxiety and paranoia. But if you actually look at what's going on in the novel, um, there is a lot of action. <laughs> there are gunfights. There are all kinds of things going on. Um, so I think, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you wanted to plot out a script, you just basically look at the events going on in the scenes and, and then the interiority that, that, that Jane brings, that, that brings the, the depth and life to it is just basically how you shoot it and what actress you get for the role. I just hope they keep the complexity because I, I think it, it, I totally get what you're saying. It is a thriller, but it, it's more than, than every other thriller I've read. It's got a different, to, to reuse a word, flavour to it. And I hope I hope they keep that. Um, to, right, to titillate my audience, though, who are, who are here for the horror, before we finish, what can you tell us about Nice is just another word for terrible? Yeah, um, uh, you mean the collection or? Yes, have I got the title right? Yes, that is. Uh, so right now it's three uh, novellas. Uh, one is that title novella, which is a, a typo in a short story that the main character, who's a writer, he's 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 um, brought to be the guest writer for a small private workshop. Uh, and uh, things go terribly wrong at this workshop, including there's a dog that's not really a dog. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a, a weird horror critique of the subprime mortgage crisis uh, a few years back because he gets to this place and it turns out that it's a kind of uh, subdivision that that there's only one guy living in one house because it failed because of the housing crisis. And uh, he learns that the guy who's the head of the workshop is actually dead. And then one of the workshop stories that they workshop is the last story the guy ever wrote. Every workshop, they just workshop that one again. Um, and things get weirder and stranger and actually a little bit uncanny from there. Um, but that's the lead-in uh, story. And then two of the others are Subject uh, 680, which is about this guy who you never learn his name, except he's named Subject 682, who's assigned by, you assume, some kind of CIA-like organization to surveil the family uh, in the house across from him. The, the catch being that his house that he's surveilling them from and the family's house were built by the same architect and are identical. So in a way, he's walking through the same house as the family is surveilling every day. And, and one day his supervisor goes nuts and slaughters the family that he's um, surveilling and he thinks his job is over and he's also horrified and doesn't know what to do. But the very next day, the family returns to the house. And then he has to really question exactly what it is he's surveilling and why. Right. It sounds like a terrifying version of Paul Oster's New York trilogy. <laughs> 
I am I am a fan of that trilogy, so I can see that. It's um yeah. I'm very excited because I actually have floor plans and all kinds of things that uh, are incorporated into the novella that that are secretly doing a lot more work than you might think. Uh, and then the last one called Bliss is about a down and out rock band in an unnamed country who uh, go down river to this very wilderness place to do a private gig for a millionaire. Uh, and things go terribly, terribly wrong um, without giving too much away. When's this book out? Um, I'm not quite sure yet. There's just scheduling issues because I tend to be a little too prolific. So um, as soon as I finish uh, The Nice is Just Another World for Terrible, the, the lead story, which is the one I, I've done the least work on, um, they'll just schedule it. So it might be the end of next year. I'm not sure. Cool. I shall look out for that. But it's definitely all basically horror. So Yeah. So everyone's ears are picked up at that then. That sounds great. So before we go, are you happy to answer my four questions that I ask each guest? Yeah. <laughs> this is my way of making a kind of compendium of answers from around the right and world. Question one, what was your gateway to horror? You know, oddly enough, I would say that in part it was um, the darker stories of Angela Carter and kind of the gothic quality of them. So that would be one answer. And the other would just be the small press magazines of the late 80s and early 1990s, um, you know, like Death Realm and, <laughs> and some of the others. And so that's where I would discover writers like Jeffrey Orser and Jeffrey Thomas and Scott Thomas uh, and Caitlin Kiernan uh, and Poppy Z. Bright. And uh, so, so that was really where it started. Angela Carter is a, a strange case. She, she's come up quite a lot on the show recently and she's gone really out of fashion and, and I hope she comes back. Well, one thing I need to mention, and it may, I hope that you get this in the background sound. Um, speaking of horror, there is a, a squirrel on the deck right now uh, gnawing on a deer's head, uh, antlers. Um, because that stops them from actually gnawing on the deck. So if you hear a background sound, that's actually what's happening right now. <laughs> they actually love bones. I don't know if you know that about squirrels. But um, yeah, I think Carter goes in cycles. Uh, so I think this might be a down cycle, but it just kind of comes and goes. And in the U.S., she's taught in a lot of major universities, uh, which kind of keeps her memory alive. Uh, but, you know, when she was alive, you know, she was lauded, but, you know, she never was up for even, I think, the Booker Prize, except maybe with Wise Children in her last. Uh, you know, she was never part of the establishment, you know. Uh, so it's kind of the way that she was in life, too. Brilliant writer. I haven't read it for years, but I read a lot of it when I was at uni. Yeah. Anyway, on that theme, if you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, you know, I, I'm going to pick a current book, um, and I think I'm going to pick The Rain Heron by Robbie Arnott. Uh, who is an Australian writer, and it is about this kind of mythical creature who then called the rain heron that can change the weather. And there's that aspect, but there's also the aspect of the military that are after it. And another thread involving squid <laughs> that is incredibly horrific as well. And so, you know, you're talking about the animal world and, and the cruelty and everything. It's not so much about the cruelty of that, It's but it's definitely got horrific elements at the same time that it's got these mythic elements. And I find that extremely, extremely interesting. I don't want to say anything more because I don't, I, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it's a, a beautifully written book too. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. I'll, I'll look it up. Um, I always put the books that are mentioned in the show notes for people who missed the title the mm. first time around, mm -hmm. so you can find it there. Um, if you had a piece of advice for a new writer or a fledgling novelist, what would it be? You know, it's... <laughs> And, and this is based on, you know, having had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with writers, beginning writers at workshops. 
a career is basically about sustained curiosity and interest in writing. Uh, and you can only do that if you remain kind of true to yourself. So, you know, publishing trends will, will, will come and go. Uh, advice about what you should write <laughs> that's external to what you actually want to write about is, is going to always be there. But, um, you know, the publishing world is also unstable enough that it doesn't really make sense uh, to do anything other than, than do the thing that's heartfelt. Yeah, that's a bit of a recurrent theme now, I think. So that sounds like excellent advice. My final question, and God knows where you're going to go with this, considering you've got a carnivorous squirrel on your porch mm. and hawks eating pigeons, but what truly scares you? Well, I mean, I, I, I have a phobia. I have a phobia of cockroaches. And the reason I have a phobia of cockroaches is that when I lived in Fiji, there was a small cockroach that would burrow into your ear. And so I would wake up some mornings with this crunching sound in my ear, and it would be a cockroach that my dad would have to pull out with pliers. Uh, so to this day, it's a very specific thing <laughs> that is horrifying to me. Um, I would also say that just in terms of images that have stuck with me and been influential, you know, I think I said this in an email, the scene in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where uh, one of the characters turns and sees a dog with a human head <laughs> or a human face. I don't know why that unnerved me so much. Uh, but that stuck with me so much that it's actually in various kind of disguised forms been in, in, in a fair amount of my work to some degree, kind of this, this morphing of things. And so, you know, I, I don't exactly know why it terrified me, but, but it absolutely was the moment in the movie that I just, it was very difficult to ever watch that moment again. Yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I think we, we did speak on, on Twitter and I was saying that the, when Donald Sutherland makes the scream at the end, it's it's like a primal fear. There's something about it that yeah. just cuts the marrow of you. It's, I remember seeing it as a, as, a, as a little kid and kind of waking up when he was doing yeah. it, and it's just never quite left me. The cockroach thing, Jeff, is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, I don't know if you have time for the funny story about the cockroach, but... I've definitely got um, time for it. Go on. Okay, so at the old house, we found that someone, for some reason, in constructing the house had created a hole in the wall leading to an area we couldn't tell had a hole in it. And it was letting cockroaches in. For the longest time, we just thought that it was Florida and we were getting cockroaches from time to time. But it turned out that once we plugged this hole, there weren't. But in any event, before we did that, and I don't know what, what sadist did that in the first place as a design feature. Uh, there was one night where I became, I've, I've become very preternaturally tuned to the sound of cockroach wings, because of course here they fly. Uh, so, you know, I could sleep through a plane going over the house, but if I hear the sound of a cockroach flying, I'm suddenly awake. So in the middle of one night, I bolt straight up. I know there's a flying cockroach in the room. Um, I'm still so tired and so not actually awake that instead of <laughs> trying to deal with it or asking my wife Anne for help, what I did, <laughs> is I ran outside the room and locked Anne in it. <laughs> and then I tried to call 911, uh, our emergency number. But instead of doing that, I somehow typed in, help, there's a cockroach on Facebook. Um, that's how disoriented I was and so afraid. <laughs> Probably the one of the lower moments of my life. I know my wife Anne was not amused. Yeah, I can imagine. At all. Wow, it's one thing to run, it's another thing to lock her in the room with it. I mean, just to finish off, my mother is um, has a phobia of cockroaches. 
Uh, and that's because when she used to, she was a psychiatric nurse. Um, yeah. And she worked in an old Victorian style, not Victorian. Oh, wow. She's not that she's not that old, but yeah. she she worked in an old Victorian style um, institution, and it, it, she worked in geriatric care. So every day they they had um, patients who would actually go home for the weekend sometimes, right. or were on yeah. day release. And when they came back in, they'd have to give the belongings to my mum. She would check them, make sure everything was okay, go about the business. And then one day, this little old lady came back to the to the hospital from a few mm. days at home, handed my mum a handbag. And when my mum opened it, it was full to the brim with living cockroaches. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And ever since, if my wow. mum sees a cockroach, she has to run away, like, literally. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, so you've wow. got one person that listened to this podcast, at least, who has had a bad time with your story. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because, you know, I have I have picked up, large snapping turtles on the road to save them uh, with no problem. I've had any kind of, you know, all kinds of other animals that could potentially harm me, have no issue interacting with, but a cockroach is what makes me run. Well, I mean, at least we finished on a kind of lighter note from the eventual ecological collapse of the world. So it's nice to finish <laughs> with a laugh. But all I can all I can say, Jeff, is is thanks very much for joining us. Um, and, and thank you for talking scared. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was a pleasure. A squirrel eating a deer antler, hawks killing doves live on air. For a moment there, I felt like I'd fallen into one of Jeff's books. I had no idea what the hell was going on when he mentioned it at first, but yeah, how fitting. I was so pleased to speak to Jeff Vandermeer. I mean... He's a superstar, doubly so after Annihilation and its mutant bear scared the arse off everyone. If you haven't seen that film, the adaptation of his book, Rush to Netflix, Rush, it manages to take a dense, beautiful, almost unfilmable story and film it whilst keeping it beautiful and dense. I was blown away by it, as challenging as it is. I say that because I assume you've all read the book, Annihilation. I mean, if you haven't, what are you doing? Read it next. Read it now. Read it immediately. It's an essential piece of this millennia's horror fiction. All that said, I do stand by what I said about Hummingbird Salamander. It's a very challenging novel. The tone is unusual and it slides into the surreal and back out again. Whatever Jeff says about it being commercial and mainstream, I would describe it as Kurt Vonnegut meets Thomas Pynchon far more than it is Tom Clancy. At times, it's difficult to pin down character motivations, both personal and in wider terms. I found it genuinely frustrating in places when it felt like the book was intentionally trying to hold itself back and to escape the pitfalls of being easy reading. I respectfully, very respectfully, disagree with Jeff. I find it a madcap novel, wholly original, infuriating and heartbreaking and absurd. But that said, at the end, it comes together in this unexpected moment of clarity that, that really hits home on an emotional level, like nothing I've read from him before. And, and like I said, it actually made me think more, and I mean this genuinely, it made me think more in the moment about the environment and my complicity in its destruction than anything I've ever seen, heard or read. Jeff's Brave Little Hummingbird brought the tragedy of it all home to me so profoundly. 
But yeah, it's not an easy book, and nor should it be. You know what should be easy? Making a podcast. But it's not. And before I go any further, let's just take a moment to bask in the glory of that seamless segue. It's almost like I wrote it in advance. Yeah, I mentioned in the foreword to this show that I've set up a Patreon. And to give a bit more detail, so you know I'm not just saying, give me your money, here's my reasoning. Making this show takes hours and hours of my time. From reading to interviewing to the bloody editing. If anyone out there ever does any podcast editing, then you will know my pain. Um, I want to continue delivering quality content and hopefully to expand what I can offer you. And if you want that, and I hope you do, then I need your support. It'll help me turn down paying work. That's what it comes down to. Face with, here's some work that will pay you for, Neil, to doing more stuff on the podcast. I need the patrons to help me make the right choice. But I'm not asking for handouts. There will be several tiers of Patreon, and all of them will come with perks. From extra episodes, to behind-the-scenes content, to community access via Discord, even a book club where we can all sit around and discuss the books that we love. All that and more. Oh, plus, I'm also offering you the chance to pose questions for the authors. I mean, that's got to be exciting, right? If you do want to support Talking Scared to grow and be the best it can be, then the link is in the show notes, and I'll be promoting the Patreon channel on Twitter. I'm already so grateful for every listener So if anyone wants to partake in the next stage of this podcast journey, then basically I will sacrifice my firstborn on an altar to you. I'm not planning on having kids, so it's it's okay to say that. I can 100% promise that the main show will not change at all. You'll still get this hopefully great thing each and every week. Oh, and one more thing. A few kind people donated to a early attempt at this crowdsourcing using a service called Coffee. Sadly, Coffee doesn't allow me to interact with you and give you the bonus content in the seamless way that I want. Patreon does. It allows the podcast or any extra episodes to download directly to your device using the RSS feed. It's seamless. Um, it's perfectly integrated. It's a better way to do it. But you did donate, and I don't want you to feel shortchanged. So if you get in touch with me um, via any of the channels, we can have a conversation about a way that I can open up the Patreon content to you for an amount of time befitting your donation. It's only fair. You were very kind. I don't want you to feel left out. So, yeah, get in touch, and we can talk about that. And that goes to everyone. Get in touch with me, whether you're patrons or not. New listeners, you can find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod. That's where I do most of my interaction. On Instagram at Talking underscore Scared underscore Pod. Or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I get some great emails from some really intelligent people with some really good thoughts that actually does go on to influence future episodes. I've had another blisteringly good review. This one from someone called HHSwimRunSwim. Thanks a lot for that. I have a feeling I may actually know you in meat space, in person. So if it is you, say hi next time we're out jogging. Everyone else, please, for the love of God, leave a review. It warms my heart and helps the show. I've banged on enough now, though, asking you for all kinds of things. And as I've said, I won't be got this long-winded again for quite a while. Not about money, anyway. Probably about ghosts or shadow people or some weird thing I read on Wikipedia. 
We've got exceptional guests in the next few weeks. Adam Ganuse is on next week discussing his smash debut, Girl in the Walls. It's something quite different for this show. Then it's a double bill of big hitters, Tanara Reeve Du, who I cannot wait to speak to because I've been sleeping on her fiction for far too long. And if you get chance, check out her documentary on Shudder called Horror Noir. It's a fantastic history of, of the black experience via horror cinema, and we're going to touch on it in the conversation. Following that, it's Josh Malaman, one of the biggest names in the horror firmament. I mean, what else can you say? It really is getting mad now. But until then... Recycle, recycle, recycle. Defend against invasive species. Petition your local politicians. And turn the lights off when we leave. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.